and welcome to Game Breaking Feature, the podcast where we analyze and discuss common elements of modern video game design and development. My name is Stephen Bennett, and in this episode, we'll be talking about how games communicate lore, those extra elements of storytelling and world building that may or may not be important to the narrative. To help me discuss lore and games is the man that ancient legend foretold would one day save me from sounding like a total idiot in every episode, my good friend Jared Bruner. Jared, how you doing, man? It's kind of a deep dive to get into that part of the game-breaking feature lore. That's not something that like is explicitly told. So yeah, you kind of have to go to like third-party sources to get that information. Where you were on vacation, that that lore you're talking about, <laughs> <laughs> the part where I try to make it sound like we're smart on this podcast. You wouldn't know it by sometimes <laughs> listening to us. No, I mean we've created this elaborate illusion that we know absolutely nothing. How how was Hawaii, man? It was great. It was. Pretty spectacular. It was my first time on uh, on the islands over there, and we had a we had a good time. Learned a lot of lore, Hawaiian Hawaiian culture, if you will. Anything interesting? You, anything you bring back and and let our listeners know about from your travels abroad? <laughs> abroad? Um, I don't. Yeah, I don't know if it's. I don't know if it's technically. I don't know. It's, I mean, it's, it's out there. You got ocean. You, so yeah, you got to go on over some water to get there. Um, I don't. I mean, on the Big Island in, in Kona, they grow a lot of coffee. So I was highly caffeinated the entire trip. And I, and I tried surfing for the first time, so add that to my uh, backstory. Right on, there you go. <laughs> well, you're back from vacation, and it's it's back to business as usual, but we have a, and honestly, it's going to be an amazing episode, and we have a great guest to talk about lore with. She's a former writer for Ubisoft, host on the Sexiest Podcast, and associate producer at Reflector Entertainment. Please welcome Ari McGillivray. Ari, welcome to the show. How are you doing? Yay, thanks for having me. Of course, it's a it's a pleasure to have you here how are you pretty good i not just got back from hawaii good but <laughs> i'm pretty good is anyone good when they get back from hawaii i feel like that's the worst part of the vacation is the return home it, it is yes <laughs> well ari again thank you for joining us for people who might not be familiar with you where where did you get your start in the video game industry you used to work for ubisoft but i like hearing how people got into doing what they're doing I think it's very funny, and everyone has a very interesting story. People who work in the game industry who aren't coming from the the dev or coding or programming side, because a lot of those stories are like, I went to school for this and then was hired for it. But when you're coming in on the script writing, animation, art side, it's always like everyone's got their own unique way. And to give you a bit of a backstory, I mean, my degree that I worked so hard for in university is in archaeology with a minor in theology. So it's not like I ever, ever, ever thought that my life path would take me into video games. Like if you went to young Ari playing Super Mario and said, hey, when do you're going to write video games? First, I would say people write video games. And then I would say, no, that's crazy. <laughs> and the way that I actually got in was they were looking for community developers on the Assassin's Creed games. And while I had never really done that in my life, uh, my good friend and a, a friend of the podcast and previous guest, Kim Belair, she had shout already... Shout out Kim. Yeah, shout out to Kim. Big ups to Kim. She had already been hired at Ubisoft. And when they said, do you know anyone who could do this job? She went, yeah. And without even asking me, wrote a cover letter slyly asked for my CV and actually applied for me. So out of nowhere, I got a call from Ubisoft saying, hey, would you like to come in for an interview? And I'm like, well, I'll interview for what? Jared, why don't you ever apply to jobs for me? I was just about to say, I need better friends. <laughs> <laughs> a 
All this to say, I got the job. I was hired as community developer on Assassin's Creed. I started on Assassin's Creed for Black Flag. Oh, one of my favorites. That's a good-ass game. <laughs> I don't think it gets a lot of credit, but that's a good game. Um, and right before Assassin's Creed Unity launched, I switched over to Far Cry. <laughs> so I got to skip that whole nonsense. Uh, <laughs> went over to Far Cry 4. Launched Far Cry 4. Launched Far Cry Primal. And then thought, eh, this is kind of boring. I want to do a different job. Which, bless Ubisoft, they were very kind and they're very good with, you know, just moving people around. And so they said, well, is there anything you can do? And I mentioned that, well, Kim and I are published authors and I can write. So uh, there was a couple games with really pressing needs for a scriptwriter. And I moved over to do that. And I worked as a scriptwriter on For Honor for just about two years before. Uh, afterwards, I left Ubisoft and now changed jobs again. Now, I was, I'm curious. Did your did your degrees in you said it was archaeology and theology? Was yes. that what you said? Yeah. Did did that ever did that play a factor in you getting hired originally? Were they looking for people with uh, like history backgrounds to to be able to speak on the topics that maybe, you know, a game like Assassin's Creed would cover? No. <laughs> All right. In well, fact, there goes my next 10 questions I had written for you. <laughs> yep. No, perfect. Um, what's actually kind of funny is I have the perfect background to be a writer on Assassin's Creed, but it just, they didn't have the need when I switched over to scriptwriter. And what's kind of unfortunate is after I decided to leave Ubisoft, there was a very pressing need. Um, maybe delete this if it's wrong, but for a new game that they just had a teaser for uh, on the new Assassin's Creed game, it would have been a pretty perfect fit, but I was already out. I am a published author, and that is what got me the job, basically. Because they don't just let anyone write video games. Or do they? <laughs> I don't know. See, this is the thing. Jared and I are, we are not even video game adjacent. I would say so everything that everything that happens on the other side of game making is a complete mystery to me, which is why I'm always I'm always like so grateful when we get people who come on our show and actually know what they're talking about when it comes to game design. I was actually going to ask you guys because before the podcast, like before we started recording, I was chatting a bit with you and you mentioned that you're both kind of from the TV side of things. And yeah. Our why? backgrounds are both in film and media production. That's what our degrees were in. Yeah, why do you the, guys uh, have a podcast in video games? <laughs> oh, I ask myself that question every day. <laughs> <laughs> um, personally, I, I love video games, you know, and an opportunity to speak about them critically. Is, it, it was a nice sort of creative outlet for me. And um, I don't want to speak for Jared, but like one of the things that I really wanted to do was try to speak about games positively you know talk about how games can be improved and obviously to do i think in order to do that you have to kind of talk about where, where video games might fall short but uh, i think ultimately the goal is to you know of this podcast is to help raise video games hopefully to another level yeah for, for me it was you know we, we both went to film school and there was a big emphasis on film history and media history and going back and looking at all the discussions, academic discussions surrounding those pivotal films that kind of established new industry norms and stuff like that. 
and video games have been such a important part of my life growing up. They've always been like one of my biggest hobbies. Uh, I felt like that that discussion was kind of missing from video games. And as video games became more elaborate and bigger, I felt like it would be good to have more voices talk about video games and the same people talk about uh, films that they really like. And while I, I won't say that like the best video game necessarily would compare to the best film, I, we are slowly heading in that direction. So... Uh, there's that. And also, yeah, like what Steve said, the positivity, there's a lot of toxicity sometimes online. And um, I sometimes think I th- <laughs> <laughs> one of my favorite parts is that we br- get to bring the human element back into it and, and talk to the people behind the games and kind of learn the story of the production of these things and why the certain decisions are made around video game design. I think that's a very interesting kind of concept that not a lot of people think of. And I, I think that part of the weird mystique of games is unless you work in games, you have no clue what it's like to work in games and what goes into, you know, these these massive games that you love or the games that you hate. And there's always those deep dives years later where someone puts out an article and like, this is why this game failed. And it's all this behind the scenes, like back and forth yelling and being a community developer. I don't know if um, I kind of explained what that role was, but basically my job was to be the liaison between the development team and the community. So you had the marketing sides of things like the PR team and the digital marketing team. And then you had us, the comm devs. And our job was to speak directly to the community and to kind of relay community sentiment back to the developing team. And one of the fights that I would have constantly with PR was why don't we educate the fans better on how video games are made? Because a lot of the toxicity that comes from these uh, games is fans or players don't understand what goes into a game. And a, a great kind of example is every time we would do a live stream, people would be like, well, stop live streaming and fix the patch. Or why aren't you fixing this thing? Why are you live streaming? And I'm like, do you think that I... <laughs> Ari McGillivray know how to fix that like us doing a live stream takes nothing away and on For Honor in particular the community got extremely toxic just after launch and what they didn't know was how that toxicity was actually affecting the dev team these hundred people who cared so much and put four years of their lives into this game that they were so proud of and they would be working on weekends. They would just be pouring their heart and soul into this thing. And what they were getting in response from the community was just like the most toxic stuff you could ever tell to another human. And we actually had to have a team meeting that was basically just stop reading Reddit. Yeah, <laughs> it's a good start. That's probably good advice for everyone. It is. And and the thing that, that you have to explain to the devs a lot of times because they're like, everyone's human is sometimes people are going to lash out at you, but they don't understand. And so you can't take it to heart, which is very easy to say and very difficult to actually practice. Yeah. It, video games are really weird because you say like people don't understand what goes into game development. And I, I, I think that's absolutely true. Like as someone who's now been doing this podcast for over a year, it's more and more apparent to me every time we record uh, an episode how little i i do actually know about game development but we know very little about a lot of the things in our lives like i don't i don't know how a, a twinkie is made 
you know, but there's something about the video game community. Maybe it's because it's like a, a huge industry or maybe it's because people are who are fans of video games are more inclined to be online. There's something about like the video game community with it that people feel it's necessary to like speak out in their ignorance where no one would no one would write to hostess and be like, you don't know how to make a Twinkie, you son of a bitch. <laughs> There is this weird thing, and I'm not like I'm. I'm not going to pretend like I understand it, but it's almost um, like an entitlement issue, where you have paid eighty dollars, and as a result, you are being you. You feel that you are entitled to give your opinion and your feedback, and a lot of the stuff that people have problems with is like, as soon as um, it's a bit like a hate snowball, right? Say there's a feature that actively is bugging and it's like, oh no, and then everyone gets really mad about that bug and well deserved, you know, like if something's bugging, if game's not working the way it's supposed to, that can make you angry. So the team works, puts out a patch. Now you're logging in and something bugs and you're like, oh man, them again. And it turns out you just forgot to update your graphics driver, right? But you made a really mean post on Reddit. You're not going to go and go like, oh, oops, sorry, it was my fault. So it just starts to snowball and then people start having problems that is completely outside of the game and they start blaming the game. <laughs> and... <laughs> I bought For Honor and my wife left me. God yes. damn it, For Honor. <laughs> <laughs> Why did you like, make my wife leave me? Unplayable. She took my PC. <laughs> <laughs> Literally unplayable. <laughs> well, Ari, I, so for Honor was the game that you moved into as a writer. Yes. What What was it like stepping into like a new IP for Ubisoft? Was did they give you a lot of freedom in your role as writer since it was sort of new ground being tread, or was it, or were they like still pretty strict? Like, what What were the advantages or maybe disadvantages to working on something so new for the company? Well, here's. It's funny. I'm like, you know, no one's ever told me things that I can and can't say about the video game process, but I'm going to try and be diplomatic because maybe one day I will work at Ubisoft again. <laughs> I don't want them to go like, hey, what, weren't you the one who talked shit? <laughs> 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 but by the time I came on For Honor, it had already been in production for three years. Oh, wow. And the reason why they kind of hired me almost sight unseen with no video game writing background was they were desperate their entire writing team had just quit oh geez and it's funny i keep thinking like oh maybe i shouldn't talk about internal politics but then i remembered that they actually made a documentary about the <laughs> internal politics and infighting in the making of for honor called play hard which you can actually watch huh i have not seen that look into it it actually it was at the, the toronto film festival tiff and oh, definitely. It, yeah we'll definitely have to look into it I think you should, because I think that it is the most earnest look at the video game uh, industry that you'll ever see, because it's literally just following three dudes who want nothing more than to make a beautiful game and how it destroyed them. <laughs> Sounds like a real feel-good tale. Oh, yeah. Bring the kids. Um, yeah. It's funny, because a lot of people see video games as their dream job, but it's so difficult, because it, it, it is four to five years of your life. And you put a baby out into the world and then it is no longer your baby. And you realize that it never was. 
sorry, I'm getting really roundabout. All this to say that by the time I was hired on For Honor, everything was already set. And what they needed was they had added a story mode. So For Honor originally wasn't released with a story mode, like as they were kind of doing the concept of the game. And as a result, they didn't have a lot of budget for narrative and they didn't have a real a feel for what they wanted to do. So a team was brought in to, like a mission design team was brought in to make the story mode missions. And the story mode was going to be written by the creative director, Jason Vanderberg, and me, <laughs> Ari McGillivray, who has never written a video game. And it was one of the best experiences of my life because everything was already set. They already knew what they wanted to do. But my first game credit as a writer included writing cinematics, writing in-game like barks, writing everything. So it was kind of the best like being thrown into the deep end situation I could get in the industry because I got to do every single thing that game writers normally don't get to do. So it was dope. And for the story mode, I really didn't get to put my own, like my own flair into it. I did add one thing into the game that I will take credit for. And you can come for me, anyone else who thinks that uh, I am speaking out of my depth here, but I added humor. <laughs> that game was very, very serious. And in story mode, like I put a Shrek quote in there. Um, yes. I would put dumb puns. And it kept making the creative director laugh. So I just kept putting in more and more. <laughs> I have not played through For Honor. How is that story delivered in that game? We told the story through cinematics, through ambient dialogue, through what we called observables. So in different ports in the level, you could look at something and it would tell you a little fact. And we tried to put in as much uh, level art and environmental storytelling as we could because it, it, it wasn't going to be in the game at all. That was the last project that you had worked on with Ubisoft. Mm -hmm. You're now with a company called Reflector Entertainment, which yes. is um, shrouded in mystery from my understanding of it. But oh, it what, is. What 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 is Reflector Entertainment? If you can describe it, and then what what do you um, what are you, what is your role with the company? I'm an associate producer on one of the things that we are currently working on, and I'm sorry if I am being very cryptic. But we haven't announced yet what it is we are doing. And when we do, believe you me, I'll talk all about it. But so we're, what Reflector does is we're a startup studio. And instead of just working on a single game, we're working on full IPs. So they call them story worlds. And within that IP, we'll have games, we'll have comic books, we'll have uh, novels, we'll have mobile games. So it's kind of a, a really ambitious idea of rolling out different stories within the same universe over various different media. That sounds really cool. Whenever you are able to share what you're working on, please let us know because we'd be happy to help promote it if we can. Oh, I would love to because I think that it would, uh, it would make a pretty fun episode. It's definitely an interesting approach, this sort of like multifaceted exploration of an IP which I think is one of the reasons that I think this topic that we're going to talk about today is going to be so good because I'm, I'm excited to get your feedback on how lore interacts with video games, Ari. But typically we kind of start this uh, discussion out talking about the history of our topic. So Jared, 
Where did uh, where did lore or this idea of lore in video games sort of originate from? When was lore invented? Lore when, started yeah, when... with a caveman <laughs> in a painting. Yeah. So it goes back to you know the Atari days, twenty the uh, twenty six hundred, which was developed by Ted Danby and Nolan Bushnell. That thing has sold thirty million copies over the years, and it was one of the first home consoles that you would purchase game on cartridges. You know, you're taking them out of the arcades, putting them in the home, and they were able to pack in manuals and a lot of those manuals had really kind of complex uh, setups and backstories for the things that you were doing early games like starship, which was one of the original nine launch titles had kind of very basic descriptions of what you're doing. It would include statements like you are the pilot and your television becomes the window of your cockpit. It wasn't until later when games like adventure in 1980 started to include more story elements in the manual. Adventurer's Manual provided context for why players were performing certain actions and also included the names of enemies that were not displayed in the game itself. There was uh, Yorgul, Grundle, Rindle, <laughs> and those were all dragons that uh, you would encounter while playing, which you wouldn't know if, if you didn't have the manual. Before the Atari 2600, there was obviously, well, there was the Magnavox Odyssey, one of our favorite consoles to bring up. That had a bunch of games built in and then later was expanded upon, but a lot of early games, especially like home console games, was really all you could do was move a white brick around the screen, right? So they were trying to just, you know, what what can this brick represent? Oh, it represents a like a ping pong ball or a baseball or a hockey puck or whatever. And there, there wasn't a lot of thought behind the story that was going into it. And I think the 2600, which if I'm remembering correctly, I think it was like an 8-bit system, you started to see a little more fidelity in what could be represented on screen. And with allowing developers to make their own games and pack in their own materials, people started to become a little more interested in what stories can we tell? You know, how, how can we communicate information to the player? You can't put everything in the game. Um, so a lot of that ended up in those, in those manuals. Does that, does that count as lore? Um, sure, definitely. I, all right. We got one definitive answer. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I remember like one, my earliest memory of this is I somehow got a copy of doom two and it was like a, it was like the shareware version or whatever you can only play. This is that your way of saying you, you pirated it? No, so no, absolutely not. I, this is like before I knew of the existence of pirating online. It might've come like in a, in a magazine or something as a demo, but I didn't really like, I didn't realize I was on Mars really. I didn't know what these things were that I was shooting. And then finally, when I got the game, I, I was reading through the manual. I was like, oh, I'm a space Marine. Okay, got it. So, um, yeah, I mean, that was really important to me. And that, that kind of, uh, that added to my enjoyment of that. And how about you, Ari? I'm going to give an anecdotal answer because I have never actually played this game. But I know that Earthbound came with a very, very cool instruction manual and guide that had tons of information about the world of Earthbound. And that 100% counts as lore. I think that anytime you can find out an element of the world of the game outside of that game, that's lore, baby. <laughs> I think when a lot of people maybe think about lore, they think about things like history being maybe the definition of lore. Uh, so for for the I guess the context of this conversation, are we saying that's basic? Are we defining lore as anything that's not like explicitly stated in the narrative? Are we considering that lore for this discussion? I would. I mean, it doesn't have to be history per se, but any piece of information of that world that is pertinent or interesting, I think counts as lore. Fun fact, 
Nintendo released all of the SNES Classic games, uh, all the manuals are online in PDF format. So Earthbound is online as a, as a PDF format. Check it out because I believe that the Earthbound manual is actually... Um, oh, there's a certain style that they call those books. Oh, man, now I'm blanking on the word. But it's actually a collage style. Like It's very coolly put together. Check out the Earthbound manual. The entire thing is in color, and each page looks like a very dense infographic. It's it's actually beautifully laid out, uh, hmm. and it's 135 pages long. Nice. That's yeah, that's insane. That when, it, when at the time that that game came out, I was probably 12. I'm gonna guess I was probably like in that age, age range, and that sounds like homework to me. <laughs> <laughs> I am going to say that only nerds play Earthbound. <laughs> That's fair. I I have not played it yet, but it is definitely like one of the classics that are on my backlog for someday. I would like to play it, but uh, just to, you know, I find that some people as kids had an SNES or they had a Sega Genesis and I was a Sega Genesis kid. I was a neither kid. I didn't, my, my parents refused to get me a SNES. I had the Nintendo Entertainment System. Uh, from the time I was very young up until the day that the PlayStation 1 came out, which I had saved up my money to buy. Actually, I was saving my money for a Super Nintendo, and my dad would not let me buy it because this this new thing called the Sony PlayStation was coming out. And uh, that's what he sort of forced me to spend my allowance money on, on getting, that, which, you know, which turned out to be a, a great deal. No, yeah. no. But imagine that at the time, that was like a huge risk. Was the, they, that thing could have failed. Yeah. It it did. Spoiler alert! It didn't. It did quite well. <laughs> <laughs> since we're since we're kind of talking about the way that that lore is delivered, at least was delivered. You know, a lot of this information from manuals and and external sources. What, what are some ways that games deliver lore now, Ari? What when you think about lore in a modern context, how is that typically delivered? Well, I'm going to speak from my experience on For Honor here because we didn't have a very good system to deliver lore because it was never built into the game. No one ever thought that people would care about the world of For Honor. But of course they do. Fans yeah. of any game care. It's Vikings versus Samurais versus Knights. Knights. Like how how could you not wonder? Like imagine in your mind. Well exactly. And as a result, uh our engine didn't have a lot of space to put lore in. In fact, the items in the game don't have a description box. Right, So I couldn't even put fun item descriptions in. So the only way that I could add lore into the game is actually in naming conventions. So hmm. what I would do is for all the characters, specifically the DLC characters, because I was brought on to write the story mode of the game, and then once the game launched, you move on to what they refer to as a game's live period. So once the game was live, there's no more story mode to write. So my writing duties strictly became menu items because that's all that was left to do in the game. So for a year, the first year that the game was live, I wrote every single menu item. And what that involves is not just the new DLC characters, the new map names, uh, the new items, but it's also the orders that would come out weekly, uh, events that would happen. And in order to create a kind of... Uh, basically a, a cohesive world to a game that never had one. 
um, I would do my absolute due diligence. And one of the first DLC characters was a Centurion. So I made sure that everything that kind of was associated with the Centurion, I wanted to tell a story of, okay, maybe the Romans did exist and lasted, the Roman Empire lasted longer in this universe. So who, which gods would they be worshipping? You know, what kind of uh, names would they be using? So all of the Centurion's armor sets are actually named after different Roman provinces. And they're grouped in where those provinces are located. So they're actually geographically grouped. And I don't think that's not explicit anywhere. You just have to be able to see all those armor sets and realize like, oh, these are all Roman territories. Did you have and, to do a lot of research for this or were you kind of, I don't like, I don't know what kind of history background you come from, but were you familiar with this type of cultures? Yeah, for sure. Um, I mean, my background is ancient Greece, but ancient Rome, I had to take a bunch of Roman history classes too. And so I did that for the centurion and the gladiator. And if the centurion's a military and gladiator is coming from an entertainment kind of world, I made sure that they had very different naming conventions while still being in the same universe. And on the other side, the Viking DLC characters were a Highlander and a Shaman. And so the Highlander, um, we had more of a, like a Gaelic character and the Shaman was a Pict. So all the naming conventions, again, come from Gaelic and Irish mythology and then Scottish mythology and trying to weave those two together. And as a fun fact, because no one was checking my work, some <laughs> of the Highlander stuff <laughs> is actually based on my family. So my last name, McGillivray, is a Scottish last name, and Clan McGillivray is from the Highlands in Scotland. So a lot of the Highlander character's war cries when he attacks is actually my family's war cry, Dunmaglass. That's awesome. That's really cool. What's incredible is I just put that into the game. And the second those DLC characters came out, people were like, what's he saying? And they <laughs> phonetically broke it down. And then one person Googled it, said it's a place in Scotland. And then they found that it was the war cry of the clan McGillivray. They went through the credits and they're like, one of the writer's last name is McGillivray. That is so like, cool. They figured it out. <laughs> Congratulations. That, that you just doxed good. yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> That, that's that, awesome. That's Mike. really cool. Yeah, it's it's neat the the idea that the game didn't have any of the systems in place to really communicate story, so lore became kind of the only outlet for that, and you had to kind of fit it in wherever wherever it was, uh, I guess, essentially possible in that in that system. That's really cool to hear. And, and again, like we're we're talking about like how little the audiences know about what goes into game making. That's one of those things that from the outside might just be like, well, yeah, why don't you just, why don't you just put it in the game? But from your perspective, when you stepped into the game three years into development, a lot of those systems were already like in place and cemented. And then you're having to kind of work around the systems in place. That's, that's, that's a cool story. I enjoyed hearing that. I uh, worked on a Netflix original show last year that is not out yet, but I was a, a one of the producers on that. And I was helping out the art department because I have, uh, I used to be a graphic designer. I volunteered to do, we had to do a newspaper, so you can't use existing graphics or layouts or anything like that. So I designed a whole front newspaper for the show. And 
I couldn't use the lorem ipsum to fill in stuff, so I had to write just kind of nonsense backstories that kind of all involved in this universe. But no one actually ever checked my work, so I just kind of wrote whatever. I definitely put my name in it and in one of the articles, so that'll be uh, fun to see if that makes the cut. (laughs) Now, when we're talking about um, ways that video games communicate lore, Jared, what do you think of? What what jumps to your head for a, a common way that games... I guess, communicate this backstory or contextual information to the player? I mean, there's common and then there's the things that I like. I I would say most commonly things like pickups and item descriptions are pretty standard in most games. Um, After Bioshock, it seemed like tape recordings were the new hotness. Um, So that that, that was a thing that I I think, at least for me, got played out pretty quickly. Um, it was and, played out by the end of Bioshock. Yeah, yeah. There was just a lot of it. You know, there, Half-Life 2 did a great job with just environmental storytelling, things that were you would stumble upon and could kind of uh, deduce in your own mind how that scene played out before you got there. So all of those things kind of set up, the, those early, you know, like the Half-Life 2 days kind of set up a lot of the, the ways that storytelling, I think, is, is still being done today. So that, that's the first thing that comes to mind for me. Well, so what what does the definition not include? It, does it not include, I don't know, like cutscenes? I guess cutscenes maybe are not necessarily lore. I mean, I, I instantly... You know, Is there a difference between lore and canon? I don't know See, how we're getting way <clears> into the that, rabbit hole. Yeah, that's, that's the question. I mean, does lore just count as every piece of information about the game? Because I, I would say that lore is counted in cutscenes. As long as the cutscene is giving you a bit of background information and not just setting up the next scene, I think it counts as lore. This is interesting, right? Because I think when we talk about lore, it seems almost it seems like something separate from narrative. I guess maybe they're a little more intertwined, a little less um, distinguishable than we might think when we first think about lore. Because you know, I, when I think about lore, I think about the things that we've already talked about a little bit. Things like you know, item descriptions and world building stuff. Uh, in a modern context, I think about things like short films that go along with the release of a game or uh, comics that come out that relate to a game. Things like, you know, things outside of the game itself, but pr- provide context. But it is true. Like, I, I just recently have been playing the remaster of Dark Souls. And that game starts with a cutscene that it, that is basically just explaining the origins of the world that you're you're in. It's telling the story of thousands of years ago, and it's not telling you the story of what's going on in the you know the modern times of that game. But it is. It's all lore essentially. So yeah, this this one might be a little bit harder to, I guess, distinguish than it might seem when when people first think of it. I think maybe it's like a you know just a, a conglomeration of all the information that's available about the game because like the Witcher series was a book series first. And then they made the games and people still really enjoyed the books. And those have been, you know, those written in uh, Polish originally and now translated to English. So I think that all of that backstory and lore was used to kind of build what we see in the games, but not everything is explicitly told in that. So I think maybe the Witcher series is a good example just because it does have such a rich uh, series of novels to back it up. Well, I think the Witcher maybe is not a great example because I think the game's diverged pretty significantly from the books but let's let let me throw out another example and this might be along the lines that you're thinking of jared uh let's talk about halo everyone knows what halo is there were a bunch of 
novels that were written that are considered canon with the video game story. Now, do those novels count as lore? You picked maybe like the biggest hole in my gaming knowledge is Halo. I've never played a single Halo game. (laughs) I mean, I'm using Halo as basically a stand-in for like video game, and then they wrote book about video game. Sure. You know what I mean? Like, does, does that book, is that lore for the video game, or at a certain point does that become its own kind of property? Or are the... Are they lore for one another? Like, is the video game lore for the book and the book is lore for the video game? I mean, uh, I think in, in Halo's case, it's for those super nerds, you know, like people who really enjoyed Halo beat all the games and they're like, OK, how can I get more? And then you can go in and dive a little bit deeper with, you know, the, the supplemental stuff. Yeah, I mean, I, I, you're kind of jumping into like who the audience for these things is. But, Ari, maybe I'll throw it to you. Does do those things does the Halo novel count as lore for the video game or does the game count as lore for the book or are they lore for one another? Like how does lore interact in that way when things are kind of separate properties in the same world? I think that that's kind of interesting because it's the difference between lore and just straight up transmedia, right? So I think that they are their own unique thing, but if there are, if there's something in the book, that relates to something in the game or something in the game that kind of is a hint to something in the book, then I think it's lore. But again, this is all very tenuous. I don't think that we're going to find like a real answer on what is the division between in-game narrative lore and what is just in the universe. I think, I think that's probably safe to say that (laughs) there's no steadfast (laughs) definition of this. Um, It is. Okay. So I'm just going to talk about, Warhammer a bit because I knew of the existence of the of the tabletop game. I knew that there was entire you know player handbooks for that that stuff that kind of gave you a little bit of context for the things that you were doing in the game. And I've since played Total Warhammer One, Total Warhammer Two, and now Vermintide. And like from everything that is happening in those games, especially Vermintide, there's like almost there's a story happening. If you don't know, Vermintide is like kind of like a Left 4 Dead game where you're running through levels. There's clearly some kind of backstories happening. Like there's a siege happening in the background and you have to like fire cannon to get through the thing and get to the end of the level. But the whole time, you know, the four characters that you're playing with, uh, it's a co-op game. They're all talking to each other and, you know, talking about Lothurn and all these like random, like very named things. It's like, am I supposed to know who that is? And it seems like there's a very huge world there. Uh, but I, I I don't know any of it, even though I've I probably collectively have spent 300 hours between all those games. I know nothing really about the story. So I don't is maybe I'm jumping the gun here, but is like lore always is that much lore always a good thing? Because to me, it takes nothing away from that. Ari, I'll, I'll let you tackle that one first. Just personally, do you enjoy like super deep dives into that kind of stuff? Here's the thing. I definitely do. You know, like I'm coming from a place where I read the Silmarillion, right? Yeah. So you, at that point, you get the full backstory of the world of Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit, Mm -hmm. which you can read the Hobbit and never read anything else in the Tolkien universe and go like, neat. Or you can read Lord of the Rings and go like, oh man, Bilbo Baggins, he's back. (laughs) And then you can read the Silmarillion and go, whoa, okay, this is why the elves were leaving and everything's weird. (laughs) And I think that there are those types of people who are just super hungry for lore. And then there are those who could have read The Hobbit and been satisfied. 
And I, you know, it's kind of the same with video games. You can play Uncharted 4 and go, this was a neat game. Or you can play the entire Uncharted series and go, oh man, they're calling back to this. Oh, I understand this reference. Does it, do you ever find it distracting in a way? Does it ever, does a character, uh, you know, do they name places and things in any of these properties? And you go like, I don't know what that is. I don't know where to find the, you know, where that information is held in this world. Or does it typically just kind of like roll off your back as you're moving through the, you know, whatever the the narrative, the quote unquote narrative of the property is that you're enjoying? I think it really depends how they've set it up. And there are definitely some games that really suffered from either a shoehorning of narrative or a lacking of narrative and lore. And there are games that are so well put together narratively that you can tell me that we're taking place in this weird world and that's it. You don't have to explain the world. Like the world of Mass Effect, I don't need to know. Like they say the Protheans made those gates. Cool. Done. I don't need to know how they're made. <laughs> what kind of metal? Where did they mine the asteroids to get the metal to make the gate? Yeah, no, that exactly. Probably, that info is probably out there. Probably. And th- you bring up a great point, Ari, though. I think it there's like a balance to all of this, right? The game has to has to strike a balance between its narrative and then the like supplemental information that it's feeding you as the player and there's a balance between that and the gameplay of the game and I don't all of these things kind of get intertwined cuz I don't think there's like oh it needs to be 50% quote unquote lore and 50% narrative I think it changes kind of game to game because, again, I'll go back to a game like Dark Souls, which is the story of Dark Souls is very simple. Like you're you're on a very simple mission and most of the storytelling in that game is done through lore. Like I would say probably 95% of the storytelling in that game is handled in these ways that we've sort of uh, defined as lore delivery. And And it works in that game. They found some way to make the the lore a compelling way to tell that story but then i think about a game like destiny and now this will be like two episodes in a row where i'm railing against destiny oh destiny no. one, one <laughs> destiny one one of my one of my favorite game i said that in the last episode too i come down hard on it because i i love it and i think it had potential to be so much more than it was so please do, I, I hope it doesn't come across like i hate destiny but that's a game where they they put a lot of emphasis in the lore of that game but it didn't work in that context. So striking this balance between storytelling uh, and how much of that is done through lore seems like a very complicated and like, I don't know, tumultuous relationship in in the way that these stories are communicated. Destiny was just one stop short of like, scan this QR code with your phone and listen to this guided audio tour of how the world works. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, there's something about a, a two-screen experience that does not work for video games at all. If you're immersed in a world, the last thing in the world you want to do is go to your laptop and be like, oh man, so what's the story behind The Fallen? Neat. I, it's it's weird I because I, there's a part of me that wants to agree with you in that area, but there's also a part of me that goes... You know what? Those those Overwatch short films were really great, and I didn't mind going online to experience that. Here's okay. Hold on. <laughs> Here's what I'm gonna say about that. I have never played Overwatch. I've never played a second of Overwatch, but I have watched every single one of those 
little videos. And they are so well made and they're so well written. And I think the difference between going to the grimoire online is you need to know that to understand the world of Destiny. Mm-hmm. You do not need these videos to understand the world of Overwatch. In fact, uh, from what I understand from friends, correct me if I'm wrong, again, I've never played this game, is that it doesn't matter. In Overwatch, you can have two of the same character on opposite teams fighting each other. So their backstory doesn't matter. You're, and, you're exactly right. Like okay. if, you try to, if you try to understand the story of Overwatch, uh, it, it's very different from the game of Overwatch. Which is, I don't know, problematic is probably not the right word for it, but it it, it is a little confusing because the story tells you that, you know, Winston and Reaper are mortal enemies. And then when you go to play the game and they're both on the same team, thematically, that doesn't make any sense. Like why that would why that would be, even though the short films tell you that they are they have this rivalry. I don't know. I don't know what to make of that. Overwatch, I guess, is similar to Destiny in that they both started out as very different games, right? Like Overwatch, I believe, started out as an MMO, like at least on paper, right? Um, yeah, I think Blizzard's so, been pretty pretty vocal about the fact that they were working on um, the Titan MMO. And like then, I, I imagine like a lot of that stuff just kind of existed before because it was going to have more story in it. And, you know, from what I've heard about Destiny's development is that that game changed completely like several times. So it's it's weird that those games that were originally so story driven, they ended up, you know, becoming something very different. And I, I think Ari's point about, you know, how important the information is is a great point in this discussion, right? Like you don't have to watch the short films to enjoy the the game of Overwatch, but the game of Destiny, I, f- I think was kind of lacking in the in the narrative department. And it would have been really nice if if a lot of that information that was included in the Grimoires had made it into that game. Destiny is a really interesting case because I am 100% with you. Destiny 1 and Destiny 2, I've had a blast playing. Like, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to pretend like I didn't love Destiny. I did. But I know for a fact that it was a problem of scope, which is one of the the real killers of a lot of these games where people have this idea of like, oh, it's going to be on this grand scale, right? You're going to visit these number of planets and you're going to be able to choose one of three races and depending on which race you choose you're going to start on a different planet so you're going to have three different trajectories and as time comes for you know release date you have to start cutting and you can tell on destiny one that there are three races right a robot an alien and a human and in destiny one you wake up in a uh like a a car graveyard in the middle of Russia. And the ghost is like, oh, you're awake. And if you're a human or an alien, you're like, uh, why am I not dead and rotted? But if you're a robot, it makes perfect sense. You were just a robot in this kind of graveyard. And it turns out that's exactly what it was. That was the robot starting world. And they just cut the other two starting worlds. So Mm. all of the guardians started in the same place. And as a result, it ruined the lore from step one. Like from the jump, <laughs> the game no longer makes sense. Ten seconds in. <laughs> well, so I don't want to get too down on Destiny because I've, I've beat I up on that, that game. game. 
I beat up on that game plenty too. I, I love that game as well. Destiny One especially holds some of my favorite gaming moments of all time. Like the Vault of Glass will forever be like burned into my brain, uh, just because so much fun, so much fun. But let, Ari, what what games make really great use of lore in in your mind? Like what what games communicate that contextual information really well for you? It's an interesting question because a lot of the games that I play are more. Um are more narratively driven games. So not like an Overwatch. Some of my favorite games in the world are made by Bethesda. And I'm a big fan of the Elder Scrolls world, and I'm a huge fan of the Fallout world. And I remember the first time I played Fallout 2 on PC. And it was incredible. Because you start that world... Uh, Have you guys played Fallout 2, actually? Very not. briefly, I bought a uh, a pack of PC games back in the day that had Fallout 1, Fallout 2, and I think it was called Fallout Tactics. It was like their Tactics Combat one that they had made. Put Fallout Tactics in the garbage. Oh, okay. I, that's the one I never actually booted up. I booted up Fallout 1 and Fallout 2. Um, I never made it too far into those games because that was a that was at a point in my life where I was just playing everything. Like literally, if, like, if oh, it yeah. didn't grab me in the first you know, 30 minutes of playing it, I was on to the next thing. So, you know, I did, I did play uh, quite a bit of Fallout 1, Fallout 2, I bounced off of pretty quickly. So Fallout 2 and a couple of the subsequent Fallout reboot games um, do an incredible job of dropping you in the middle of a very strange world and slowly letting you understand and explore the world as you go. And one of the very cool things that the Fallout series did, and I don't mean to make a distinction between Fallout 1, Fallout 2, and then Fallout 3, Fallout New Vegas, and Fallout 4, but there was a huge shift between those games. Same universe, but, you know, obviously different creative teams. Black Isle was no longer making them. Um, But in Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, you know that you are in a post-apocalyptic world. And it's only as you play more and read things and hear little snippets of conversations that you understand that it was actually a nuclear war between the U.S. and China. And the game never tells you that, right? You just figure it out as you go along. And one of the things, I'm about to get real nerdy on my Fallout lore here, but one of the things that games like Fallout 1, Fallout 2, and Fallout New Vegas did extremely well is you wake up in a world that has already moved on. And in Fallout 1 and Fallout 2, you can visit like Vault City, where they actually use the Garden of Eden creation kit to restart humanity. And it's a fully formed city with water and they're fine. And you get to visit these settlements that are like, yeah, it's years after the apocalypse. Humanity started over. And in Fallout New Vegas, like the Vegas Strip is up and running and they've already moved on. And so you get to explore these worlds where you're not, you're not the deus ex machina of this world. The world doesn't revolve around you, which is one of the things that I hate about the Elder Scrolls series. You're always the chosen one. And I'm like, I don't want to be the chosen one. I just want to be someone living in this world and exploring it. And I find that those uh, three games in the Fallout series do such a good job of not hitting it over your head of what has happened and just letting you go like, you're in this world. Explore it. Kind of find out what's gone on. Why is uh, there a gang of Elvis Presley impersonators in Fallout New Vegas? (laughs) You know, 
And I find that those games do an incredible good job of adding lore. Some of them don't do a great job. Fallout 3 and Fallout 4 are more like, hey, you are somehow going to be the savior of these worlds and you have to make the world good again. No, I don't. <laughs> Leave me alone. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I, I was actually introduced to the Fallout franchise through Fallout 3. And while, you know, that might not have been the strongest of it, I that was going to be my example for this question too, is that like, I just think that Bethesda with the fallout series in particular does a very great job of not beating you over the heads with it, uh, doing that, all that environmental storytelling. They did such a good job because I think from a narrative standpoint, at least the fallout threes, fallout fours of the world, those have, have been a little lacking on the narrative side and not that the stories are bad, but that they, in a way, kind of write themselves into a corner, right? And we talked about this before. I forget which episode it was. But there's this dissonance that occurs when you're, you know, you're, you're trying to track down your father or you're trying to find your, your kidnapped son. But then you're also, you know, helping someone find their Frisbee that they threw into a tree. You know what I mean? Like, there's these, from a narrative, uh, the narrative side, there's these shortcomings in those games, but the strengths of those games have always been in that lore, in the the contextual information that they're communicating. And even if it's like, it's something like you said, Jared, like a world storytelling, or sometimes you'll go into a facility and you'll read back and forth emails on computers that explain like, you know, what, what happened in this library that it's, you know, now all burned out. And, and all of that stuff is really great because it's, to me, that's like the, the cool side of storytelling in video games, right? Is not the like, here, we're going to tell you all the information about this world. It's, it's the, we'll let you learn about it if you care to. You know, you're, it doesn't make sense in a game, especially like uh, what you were talking about, Ari. I think this is, you know, video games for a long time have been very tied to trying to emulate the way that movies communicate story and books communicate story and one of the things that you do is you have a character who's not familiar with the world that they're in so you have people tell them about what's going on well to me the more exciting side of storytelling in games is you are a character that lives in this world it doesn't make sense for someone to tell you like we were you know the the world got bombed out uh because we were at war the united states was at war with china it's something that you know in, in that universe everyone should already know no one would have to explain that to a person but it's cool that you then can pick up on that stuff through the contextual elements of that game. So I think that's always kind of been the, the lore side of the storytelling has always been the, the fallout strength and the, and now sort of the Bethesda strength since they've taken over that, that franchise. A lot of games rely on the fish out of water kind of scenario. Yes, and because exactly. you are, a, yeah, because you're a fish out of water, you're allowed to ask these questions and fallout two is, Actually, Fallout 2 and Fallout New Vegas are the only in this series that didn't do that. In Fallout 2, you are a member of a tribe from the original Vault Dweller, who at the end of Fallout 1 has been kicked out of his vault. So in Fallout 2, you start as a tribe member who has lived in a post-apocalyptic world. You're not, mm -hmm. there, there's not that scene where the vault door opens and it's all white and then slowly you see the devastation. Like you have lived in the devastation. So there's no fish out of water. You're just going. And Fallout New Vegas is the same thing. You're not a vault dweller. You're a messenger. You live in that world. It's not weird to you. And I find that those are the two strongest games in the franchise. 
yeah, I think you're, I think you're exactly right. And I think those, you know, that's the exact reason is that they, they didn't kind of, they didn't rely on those methods of storytelling that sort of exist in film and television and, and books that video games offer this unique experience in that you as the player can, can actively explore the things that interest you. And, and those, the games that allow you to do that are the ones that for me are, are the most interesting from a story standpoint. Now, people who listen to this show know I'm, I'm gameplay first story. Second, like if the game is fun, that's what I'm there for. And if the story is good, you know, that's the icing on the cake for me. Now I'm, I think most people are probably the other way around, but that's. I'm uh, very that's interested to see what they are going to do with Fallout 76. They have not released any information about that, but there have been credible sources saying that it's an online survival game. And I'm wondering because that series, at least, you know, with the exception of New Vegas, uh, Fallout 3 and 4, have been kind of that fish out of water type experience. Is this an opportunity for them to go back to kind of you are just a survivor living in this world? You're not the guy who's going to save, you know, everyone's savior because it's online and there's going to be like, you know, a million other people just like you. It's and I know we don't have an answer to that, obviously, yeah. but I, I'm, I'm hopeful that maybe like that, that tonal change will come with, you know, just the the way that this this game may or may not be designed. I don't know yet. I am super curious about it because as you may or may not be able to tell, I'm a huge Fallout fan, and there's only one thing that they could have announced that would have put me off, and it's online survival game. Right. <laughs> the only thing that I would want as a change in the series, because literally they could just keep putting out games and putting me in a different part of the world, I would love a Fallout based in China to see what happened on the other side of you know the mm. ocean. But one of the like one of the only things that I would have wanted to see other than that would be a game that I could play with my buds. And if we can do a co-op Fallout experience, incredible. If it's just Elder Scrolls, but in the Fallout universe, I am out. It seems like an interesting opportunity, though, because nothing makes you feel like less like the center of the universe than having other players around you right like sort of by definition you can't be the center of everything if there's other people in the world with you i wonder if they will use this upcoming title as an opportunity to explore what that what that experience is like you know what do more of that fallout world building but in a sort of a multiplayer context i think that could be could be really cool all, well, all on we'll find out in a couple here. weeks yep <laughs> it's coming up soon yeah we'll just i guess i'll just hold until right. E3 there's and... so much that I could I, I want to say about it, but there's so little information. And it's just like, ah, I just hope. Well, Ari, in talking about lore, is there such a thing as like having too much lore in a game or too little lore in a game? I think that there I don't know if it's a situation of too much or too little, but there's definitely a situation of using it weirdly or I guess I'm trying to think if there's a game that I've been put off from because it had too much lore. And it's funny because even a game that one would argue has too little lore, like a Dark Souls or a Bloodborne, if you look into it, it's actually there. Wait, and are you saying are you saying you think Dark Souls has too little lore or Bloodborne? Well, I think that they do such a good job 
of hiding it, not hiding it, but not shoving it in your face, that you just have to understand, like piecing together the world of, of Bloodborne and, you know, the blood magic and what has started happening to these people. It's never expressly told to you. You just yeah, have it's to extremely it optional. It's in, I just think it, it's interesting the way that you said that um, that it has too little because I think that's a game that has a like is steeped in lore. But I guess maybe it's just sort of a difference of perspective because to understand any of that story, it's all the supplemental stuff. There's no as you play through Bloodborne, if you never read a, the description of an item, the cutscenes give you no context for what's happening. So at a certain point, you're just killing monsters to kill monsters. But all of the story stuff in that. I thought was essentially through the the massive amounts of lore that are in there. It's just it's interesting that you think it has very little. I think that you could play a Dark Souls game through and never understand what was happening. Oh, I, yeah, I agree with that 100. percent I am one of those people, with with the exception of I never made it through that game because I'm bad at it. <laughs> Me neither. I've never completed any of those games. <laughs> and it's it's funny. I think that a game series that would have too much lore would be, I, I would say the Assassin's Creed series because they want each game to be associated to the game before, or, you know, mm -hmm. to have some association in the universe and they're juggling present day versus the past. And I do mm -hmm. find that as the Assassin's Creed games went up in number, they started to really lose track of what they were doing. Yeah, there seemed to be like a, a cohesiveness problem with that. And that was one of the things that really interested me about the first Assassin's Creed was those two timelines. Um, and then I kind of fell off the Assassin's Creed series for a while until uh, Origins. But people seemed kind of down on that whole part. They're like, I wish they would just get rid of that whole timeline. I'm like, well, that was like the coolest. Like I was mostly interested about that in the first game. Uh, and and it's it kind of has like the problem that, the lost TV series had was that it they they established a lot of things and they never quite knew where they were going with it. Well, and that's actually one of the difficulties in the video game industry, specifically with an annual release title like Assassin's Creed was, is that it can't be the same team making the game because they're on three year cycles. Right. So mm. the team that made the first Assassin's Creed didn't make the second Assassin's Creed. They made Assassin's Creed 2 Brotherhood. The team that made Assassin's Creed 2 didn't make Assassin's Creed 3. They made Assassin's Creed Black Flag. And as a result, you now have, like, each game set up a question to be answered by the second game. But the second game has a different series of writers. It has a different creative director. It has a different narrative director. So I feel like that is a weird thing that would never happen in the television or movie industry, right? Like if a TV show loses its showrunner, that's a big deal. Yep. The show changes tone or sometimes the show stops. But in video games, there is no showrunner and they lose their core team all the time, right? Like the Batman games, you can tell which ones were made by which studio. So I think that it's a really weird thing in the video game industry that we have, a problem that we have. And it's most clearly seen in the Assassin's Creed games where Assassin's Creed 1 sets up a really cool ending question. Assassin's Creed 2 is like, yes, we will answer this. And Assassin's Creed 3 is like, lol, it doesn't matter. We didn't care. <laughs> I really want there... 
if it's not already being worked on, like something in my gut tells me that someday we will get the Hideo Kojima story because that <laughs> is a uh, one series that has had, you know, a very uh, a tour type creative director for You're talking Metal Gear. Metal Gear, of course, yeah. For most of its, you know, for its basically its entire series up until, you know, he was he was let go from Konami. And those games narratively and the backstory from those games are just like all over the place. Like it's probably my favorite series ever, but like man, what the hell is going on? Like is is <laughs> Kojima a madman or is there like weird things that just happened at Konami, stuff got cut out, he wasn't allowed to do things, so he started getting crazy with his ideas and I don't know. Like I I really want to find out because well, that's kind of the opposite problem where you had that that through line through decades right like he's he was with konami for his entire career up until you know last few years so um i want to know what went wrong there or if 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 hideo is just a you know a different type of thinker storyteller but i as i understand it and i'm not as big a metal gear fan as you are jared but i, I think in those games a lot of that the story uh pieces together like there's a lot of puzzle pieces and they're all over the place and the timelines get confusing but when you lay out all the snakes straight in a row they the story kind of makes sense i think this might be kind of kind of i mean over all these years it's hard to keep track of all that stuff but i think for the most part it creates a satisfying arc like you can follow one thing to the next you can, you gotta like do mental gymnastics to do it but if you put in the effort it's all there i think this might be one of the the things where assassin's creed maybe started to f fall apart a little bit is that there wasn't really a good way to lay everything out straight. It Everything was kind of, like you had said, introducing new questions without introducing answers. And that might ultimately be why a lot of fans, myself included, felt a little bit let down by the ongoing story in the Assassin's Creed games, in spite of them trying to develop a really rich lore in those games. Well, that's it. Like when you look at the first two and then, you know, 2.5 and 2.75 in Brotherhood and Revelations, they set up a world where there was a, a first civilization before any recorded civilization that we know. And in Assassin's Creed, ooh, I can't remember if it's two or Brotherhood, there's a moment where Ezio finds a hologram in a server room and the hologram talks to you. And Ezio's going, I, who are you talking to? <laughs> and it's so cool and interesting. And you're like, holy shit, where are they going with this? And the answer was lost. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> like it yeah. never paid out. And I think there were there were elements of that in the first game where characters I think talk to Desmond from the past. Like they talk to uh, Altair, but really they're talking to like the future, you know, the the bloodline relative of Altair a little bit. And this makes me think of actually one of the first games I remember playing where lore became a significant part of the story, which is a game called Deus Ex. People on here People who've listened to the show probably have heard me bring this up before, but one of my one of my favorite games of all time, and I'm talking about the original one, not these like remakes that they did. In in that game, there's these rival AI components that are facing off against each other, and you're sort of like mixed up in this conflict. But there's Daedalus and there's Icarus, and Daedalus is the the good AI. He's the one who's been programmed for the benefit of humanity. And when you encounter him, he's essentially locked in a closet like it's not necessary that you ever go talk to him he's kind of out of the way but in talking to him all he wants to discuss with you for the most part is philosophy like sci-fi philosophy 
So I ended up spending a, a long time in this totally optional, <laughs> totally optional conversation with a robot just because I, I love getting into all that, the, you know, the ramifications of, you know, augmenting humanity and, and stuff like that. So to me, I thought that was, that was really cool. And I, I don't know, because it was a, a hologram that you're talking about, it just made me brought back flashbacks of that that great game and that great uh experience in that game was that whole encounter was that voice acted um it was like like the rest of the, i remember like most of the game there was like voice acting and you could like choose your responses and so it, they did they do something similar for that little side story yes there was it was all fully voice acted i now it's funny because when i was putting together the show notes for this i had seen the the voice actor that played daedalus and now it, it's escaping me and not that I even remembered it five minutes after I had, <laughs> had read the person's name, but I love Daedalus. I, I, that was like the first. That was like the first time I really remember a a part of a game where they weren't talking about story, where it was something new and interesting that that lended context to the world, but was was not about what I was, what I as the savior of humanity was was dealing with. It ultimately, you know, it kind of helps shape the decision that you make at the end of that game in talking with Daedalus for a long time. It starts to flesh out a lot of the conflicts that are going on, but without making it explicitly about those conflicts. I thought that was that was really neat. And I think it may be obvious from some of our discussion already, but I think that it's important to talk about the delivery. You know, when when we talked to, when I was asking about the delivery of the lore in For Honor, um and I, I think it's, and we talked about in Destiny, right? It's like the delivery is that it's not in the game. You have to go outside, go to the website, read this, mm. read that stuff. If we're talking about games that had too much lore, I started with the Elder Scrolls series at Oblivion and then later um, Skyrim. And while, you know, there's there's a pretty heavy narrative there. There's a lot of side stories you could do. There are just like books, books and books and books everywhere. And this was the same in, I noticed this um, in Dragon Age Origins. Tons of books. You could read Dragon Age Origins, I think, had like 20 page books that you could read through. Uh, and I, it just that just puts the gameplay dead stop for me. And I will never read through that. But there are people who enjoy that and they get a lot of information from the, the backstory of the lusty Argonian maid or whatever it was. You know, it's like <laughs> it's a lot of fun in world fiction. But man, I, I'm, I'm not there for that necessarily. I, it, I think it just stops the gameplay dead in its tracks. Um, and it's similar with stuff where you have audio logs uh, that you have to stand next to in games but in, until you know if you walk away from them then they'll stop playing like I don't want to do that I feel like that just kind of breaks up the game in not a very good way because it's not super interesting just standing in one spot listening to an audio log or reading a, a 10 page book that you know there's probably hundreds of like in Elder Scrolls it's funny when it comes to those kinds of things I always picture like if I was there and I'm on this like epic quest to save the world or something and I'm hitting like play on a recorder and I'm just like standing there just listening to this dumb story. <laughs> Going through a dungeon with a couple of followers and you're just like, hold on, hold on. Let me get the torch yeah. a little closer, sit down and put on your glasses. Yeah. Like, I'll be here for a little bit. Yeah, and wait, hold on a sec. I want to know a little bit more about this area of town. In, in Bioshock, I would pick up the, uh, the audio device when you're you know you're listening to the the characters explain what's happening in the world but th then i wouldn't really go anywhere not that you couldn't go anywhere but that was like shit if i get in a gunfight i'm not gonna be able to hear this dialogue 
Yeah, that's that's a problem too. Or yeah, if it or you accidentally walk too far and it stops, or you press a button and it skips it, and it's just like, well, what the hell? I will admit to one of the nerdiest things I've ever done is in the Elder Scrolls games, both Oblivion and Skyrim. I don't read those books in game. I think it's dumb, but I did download a PDF of every single book in Skyrim yes. and read it independently on the bus on my nice. iPad. Hey, I mean, that's not the worst thing you could have picked up to read. I'm sure. I mean, that's 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 great that you enjoyed the world enough to to go out there to do that. Um, when it's in game, I sometimes I feel like they want me to do that. Like I should be doing this because I'm not getting the full story if I don't. And that's a feeling that I don't like. I don't like that either. I don't. And I think that that is the real the crux of narrative and lore is are we requiring the player to stop and read these or is it just a fun flavor for people who want that extra little hit of lore? I guess that goes back to just, it's like, it's like a difficult balance thing, right? Like it's, it's hard to balance those, those ideas effectively because I think if it was, if it was doing it perfectly, you wouldn't have those, those feelings, right? Like when I play a game like Bloodborne, if I don't read every single item description, I don't feel like I'm missing anything. But if I go in and, and, and you know, read like what, you know, what is a jar of eyeballs? Um, it starts to give little hints about what, you know, why it exists in this world. So yeah, it's in it. Maybe it's, maybe it's just a delivery thing. Maybe it's just like, because it's a book, it can kind of create that sense. Like, is this important? Is this not important? I, I want to briefly mention this and we don't, we don't have to spend long on this, but I think there's a great example of how lore actually killed a game before it ever got made. Do you do either of you ever remember that game Kingdoms of Amalur? No. I, I remember you talking about it and I was interested in it, but I didn't really once you told me that it was like a single player World of Warcraft, I was immediately out. I don't know if I I don't know if I would describe it as that. Maybe at the time I did. So Kingdoms of Amalur was an RPG. It was made by a uh, famed baseball player, Kurt Schilling. Because of course. Yeah, because of course. Now he, this was, And this was before he turned into a horrible political Wait, monster. Wait, was, was, was that the one where he like gave Rhode Island a ton of money to make the game? No, they Rhode Island gave him a ton of money to make the there game. There you go, okay. <laughs> I knew Rhode Island was in the news for something. It was, so Kingdoms of Amalur was sort of a proof of concept for this MMO that he was going to be making. Now I can't remember the name of the MMO that was supposed to be in production, but one of the things that they did was they went after R.A. Salvatore. Salvatore? I've only ever seen his name written. I've never heard it spoken. But... Right, he's the Lost Realms guy, right? Yep, well-known mm-hmm. uh, well author. And, and Todd McFarlane, who is uh, known for Spider-Man and Spawn and, and uh, those comic books. Together, these two created a what what were called like bibles for this world just like thousand page documents explaining the history of this world and the the promise was that none of this story was ever going to be in the game it was all just to provide context for the world as they fleshed it out into this mmo but i think that that's a game where they got like way too ambitious spent too much time on the the lore of this world and then forgot to make a game (laughs) (laughs) kingdoms of Kingdoms of Amalur, I think, was fun. I think I, I had a good time playing it. I think it was far too big of a game for what it was for what it was doing. I probably spent about forty hours playing that game, and uh, I sort of reached a point where I was like, "Okay, I've had my fun with this game. Uh, I'm I'm now going to just 
kind of mainline and see how you know see how far away I am from the end. It's an open world game, so I just ran from like essentially where I was at to as far as I could run. And I realized like I had not even scratched the surface of this world in like 40 hours of playing this game. And to me, this is symptomatic of probably what happened with this with this video game is they had all of this like world building and lore and backstory and these Bibles. And it ended up making this unwieldy game that then never made it to the MMO that they promised. And then they ended up like folding and Rhode Island was out of a bunch of money and it left kind of a, a black eye on the game making scene in the state of Rhode Island. But that's uh I just wanted to bring that up because it was one of the things I was thinking about as I was putting together these show notes. So like this weird experience of where maybe too much lore killed a game. And I don't think that's a bad way to do it. I think I, I like the idea of writing the universe before, you know, necessarily attaching it to a story. Well and this sounds um, like and this sounds like maybe what Aries Aries doing. I mean, it, it exactly. And it like, doesn't I'm, sound. I can only speculate because they they haven't announced anything yet. I know, but on paper, <laughs> on paper, like it, it sounds like a like a genius idea of like, yeah, let's work on what this whole world is like, and then build a game from there. I just think you need to land the execution part of it, and maybe that was where they, right. they had failed, or maybe they didn't balance their world building and lore with their development of those games. Right. I mean, obviously, like I don't know. I don't know the entire story behind that game, but obviously it was a it was a scope issue because it just became too much. And this raises an interesting question, I think, for me personally, is like, do I care more about lore or do I care more about world building? And are those different things? Because I appreciate things like film, the alien films and the world that that is set in. And none of that necessarily was is told until kind of recently. They didn't really expand on that. Uh, but there there did seem to be an entire world that had existed beforehand. Uh, I've been reading through the Expanse series, and I've, and I've watched uh, up to like season three of the Expanse. And that show and that, that book series does a really good job of establishing this entire universe of things that have happened without having to explicitly say that. So is that more world building or is that still considered lore? I know we're kind of late in the podcast to like try to keep defining this. But in my mind, I feel like it's more important for me to have the idea of a backstory than to have to go and read something that explicitly tells me like this is the history of what happened before everything got here it's very interesting you brought up the the term um like world bible and so Mm -hmm. all video games have a world bible and the bible isn't just for the narrative backstory it's also for like here are the themes we're touching on here are the colors we want to use right But there is Mm -hmm. definitely a part of it that is the world and the narrative. And the way narrative in video games has been explained to me, and I think this is a great explanation, is it's an iceberg. So the players get to see what's above the water. But what's below the water is even more expansive and massive. So the makers of the game need to have, like they need to be able to see under the water in order to prop up what the players can see. And the thing is, the player never needs to know certain backstories, but the people writing the game do, because it is going to influence certain mm-hmm. things. And if a game is made well, then you can infer certain things of the world because of the way characters interact with it. And I think that there are some games that, and it sounds like the one you just mentioned that failed, if you try and show the player too much of that iceberg, it is overwhelming. And there's a reason why it's supposed to be kept underwater because it makes your world believable 
But if you mm-hmm. show too much of it, then it's it's too much for the player to try and remember and understand. Yeah, I, I, I like that idea of like the developer needs to know, but the player doesn't. And the good examples of lore are because the developer did or the the designer did that in the in a better way, you know, than those that had failed. So but being I, able to implement that knowledge and, and, and make those inferences to to players, I think, is probably really hard to do. I think and I think this I, that analogy is really great because I think it helps also maybe further answer some of the questions about why things like a book or an audio log in a game feel uninteresting in that if you have a really good foundation for what the world is that your that your game is taking place in you will find uh, organic natural ways to fit that context into the game you know be it you know a conversation that characters are having as you walk past or I hate to use item descriptions because that feels kind of arbitrary as well, but it, it'll feel more natural in that world where something like a book that you can, you know, sit down and read for 30 minutes in a video game can feel a little bit artificial, even though it's lending context to the game. It feels kind of like a, uh, like a shortcut to get that information into the game when there might be more interesting or compelling ways to get that information to the player. And Jared, you, you mentioned the alien movies, which is actually funny enough, like one of the things I had really, really been considering as we were, um, as I was putting together show notes for this episode in that, I think that, you know, back in the day, early video games, they did, there was not a lot of this lore discussion around them. Like people, I don't think were champing at the bit to find out what the, you know, what the backstory of Mario and Bowser is, you know, there was, there was context in the game and there was context in the instruction manual, but um, there was not a whole lot that came out around the time of that game where, you know, it, it went in depth about all that stuff. Alien, I think, is a great example of of maybe where too much lore can be a problem. And, you know, I I, <laughs> I have said, like, I think uh, uh, Ridley Scott ruined is like trying to actively ruin the alien movie. Like every time he releases a new alien movie (laughs) now, he's like trying to go back and destroy it. But I don't, but I understand where he's coming from. Right. Cause he over, you know, whatever it's been, uh, 40 years since alien came out, something like that. Yeah. Um, has probably heard every single day of his life. What you know, what was that spaceship that, that was crashed on, you know, on that planet? Where did the aliens come from? So he probably thought to himself, well, people keep asking me, they must really want to know. So I'll make a movie explaining that. And then he makes a movie and it's like, oh no, we didn't. It was actually better when we didn't know any of that stuff. When it was about when the mystery lived in our head before it was overly explained. I think Star Wars had this problem when they were starting, you know, when George Lucas was explaining what the force is. So I think there, there might be situations in where, maybe over communicating lore is a problem I, in video games. Unfortunately, I can't really think of anything, which is why I don't know why I don't know why I do a podcast about video games. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to the uh, series finale of game breaking. Where was... Steve finally realizes he's unqualified to be doing this show. No, I've known that I've known it since the very beginning, just an existential crisis at the end of this episode. And it was the last one. But I think, does fan culture play a part in that? Do you think developers, writers, and not just in video games, but maybe all mediums now, especially with the, you know, the prevalence of the internet, they hear from fans 
I want to know more. I want to know more. I want to know more. And now there's sort of this obligation to put more and more and more information into the game or around the game. I can tell you, yes. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, so here's the the weird dichotomy of video games, right? Well, it's not a dichotomy, but it's like it's a weird thing that happens in games is that say a game like For Honor, right? That has sold. I think when I left, it had just sold 4 million copies. So 4 million people have played For Honor. Now, we have a subreddit that's very active, and it has about 25,000 people. When the developers are wondering, what are people into? Like, what kind of features should we really be focusing on? They're going to that subreddit. So what they're seeing is the most vocal 25,000 people in the game, like we're playing, out of 4 million. So it's not a good percentage, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times it's very difficult to temper, you know, they'll see someone going like, oh man, I really wish, this is an example that would never happen, but I'm just using it. Like, imagine the people in the forums are like, ah, oh, I really wish we could use guns. <laughs> <laughs> sure. And all of a sudden, like upper management's like, oh, oh man, they're thinking about guns. Should we be putting guns in the game? Is this a thing? Should we like test the market on? And then you have like a consumer testing panel of generally white males age 18 to 24. And they're like, should we put guns in Froner? And they'll be like, yeah, of course, that would be great. And then you get into this difficult cycle where the developers need to know <laughs> when something that a fan wants is dumb and when something <laughs> that a fan wants is actually like a good idea. I'm going to guess it's like 99% of the time it's dumb. It's always dumb. Oh, because, okay. <laughs> <laughs> because the thing that everyone always forgets is that the people commenting on the message boards don't know how to make a game. So something that to them sounds like the easiest thing in the world, like, sorry, why can't you guys just add a new map? Or you guys had a, a play, uh, like um, we would have these special events, like um, on one of them, it was on ice and the ice would break. And they're like, well, why can't you make it an event or a map that's always there it, instead of just for a fun, like wintertime event? And the answer is because we can't support it because the game has to be balanced between the amount of players we have. And the more modes you put into a game, the thinner your online player presence is on those modes. So every single thing that goes into a game has to be thought of. And sometimes your idea sounds like the best idea in the world. But what you don't know is that they physically can't do it. And as a result, it becomes this weird cycle where they're like, well, but we want it. And, you know, the com dev or whoever has to be like, sorry, like, thank you for your suggestion. But we can't like we're not going to be doing anything like that now and they're like oh but we want it and one of the things that players do to kind of um try and push the hand of developers is bomb your steam score yeah like they'll get a group of people together go on steam and just destroy you and as a result like for honor actually i like i'll say it it's a good game where it's come in the year since it's been launched, it's it's one of the like most solid online PvP games. And its Metacritic 
on consoles is way higher than on PC because on Steam, they just decided to destroy it. Hmm. And it's a real shame because you can actually stop a game from existing, right? Like, if the higher-ups see that score and go like, wow, people hate this game, we're cutting it. That's it. It's gone. And it's really weird, and it's always sad that it's the most passionate people, right, who do this? Yeah. And they're the ones who are going to be bummed when the game's gone. Yeah, I, I always enjoy reading negative Steam reviews where it's like... Don't waste your money. This game is garbage. And then it says 300 hours played or above yeah. their name. It's like, <laughs> yes, really? Yeah. Like you didn't get your money's worth? Get out of here. <laughs> or it's like one update that they didn't like. So it's like, well, I'm just going to leave this and call the developer trash. And it's like, man, that's such a bad way to do it. And, you know, it's unfortunate. It's like, yes, there's a 25,000 out of the 4 million or whatever people. But because you're working for such a big company and it's a public company that needs to make money, all you have are metrics. And so if you see those numbers, it's like, well, it's like they don't represent the 4 million people. And it's like, well, that's the only thing we have to go off of. Um, I don't know that. I know that movies have this problem to an extent, but I, you know, I feel like there are probably way more movies that try to get made than games. I don't, I don't know. I feel like maybe I'm just talking out of my ass here, but there, there's, there definitely seems to be talent more attached to films on the people see. Like people are into the actor or the director, sometimes the writer of that. And you don't see that as much with video games. It's just like, oh, Ubisoft is coming out with another video game. But they don't really, a lot of people don't dive real deep to see like, oh, it's a creative director that also made another game that I really like. Well, that's um, you it, know, There's right? some exceptions with like um, the Bioshock creator. What was his name? Um, Why can't I think of Adam right now? something? I don't know. Anyways. Ken? <laughs> I can't think of his name. Hideo Kojima. I'll just say his name again. I was going to the- <laughs> say, ap- apart from naming Hideo Kojima, can you name three creative directors of your favorite video games? Ken Levine from Bioshock. Yes, Ken Levine. And yeah, you know, and I can name like maybe two voice actors. And so I don't know. Maybe that's that's part of the problem is that we don't put a face to video games as much as we do things like film, and that that makes it hard for people to not see games as you know just something created by this faceless corporation well i kind of sorry we're very much getting off track but that's 100 percent one of the problems we have in the industry and what was very interesting was on a live stream um which is kind of the easiest way that video game companies have to kind of talk to their fans and explain what's happening but again you're only getting like the top percent like the top 1% of your players are tuning into a live stream. Mm-hmm, right. But on one of the live streams, uh, the com dev, Eric Pope, who's the sweetest boy, uh, he mentioned, <laughs> you know, like, oh, oh, Ari, our writer, our only writer. Like he mentioned that I was the only writer. And all of a sudden the community were like, sorry, this is all one person? <laughs> yeah. And it created this weird thing where all of a sudden people did know the name of the writer on For Honor. Mm. And they all of a sudden understood, like the the comments went from, lol, someone at Ubisoft sure likes memes, to, wow, Ari sure likes memes. <laughs> <laughs> and working at Ubisoft, you get that all the time, where people are like, ugh, Ubisoft fucked it up again, or ugh, Ubisoft did a thing, and you're like, it wasn't Ubisoft. It was 
you know, the Forerunner team. It was these hundred dedicated nerds who just want to make a good thing. They all have names. Why can't you name them? And and to to try to like tie it back into our discussion of lore, I think that maybe if the culture around that changed to be more similar to you know the the forward faces of of film and and, and similar media, like would companies, video game big video game companies, would they also shift their culture in the way that they look at it to try to make try to keep these teams together and and creative directors working so there are more cohesive stories between you know like for example Assassin's Creed. Um, you know, and stuff like that. So I, I'm wondering if a culture change would kind of improve some of the the, the types of things that we've we've identified as sort of shortcomings in, mm. in lore and games. I don't know. I think it 100% would because the way games are made should be closer to the way movies are made or TV shows, and they're not at all. And it's a weird thing where it was such a niche industry that all of a sudden is making billions of dollars. And you look at what the salaries are on a movie, right? And very few movies make billion dollars, but a lot of video games do. Do you think that anyone had a salary anyway similar to a salary in movies? No, of course not. And I think that the video game industry ballooned so quickly that it's only now as... People have been in the industry for a while and spin off and make their own studios, right? Like a small studio like Campo Santo who did Firewatch. Like those are people who are able to go, we can change the culture and show them that you can make a video game this way. And it's going to take a lot for the big AAA studios to change the way they do things because the way they do things now makes them so much money. Well, and Ari, let me ask you this, since since we have you here and you've maybe been in these positions where... Uh, the audience can directly communicate with you. Did you find that fans of For Honor had specific questions about the story of the game? And then did you feel compelled to, uh, you know, put that feedback into the game itself or answer those questions? Did it did it impact the way that you wrote the lore for the game? 100%. So after they mentioned that I was the writer, I started getting uh, questions on my Reddit account and on Twitter and people were like, it was actually very funny because when I was community developer on Assassin's Creed and Far Cry, I got some of the worst things you can ever like send to another human, right? Just toxic, vile stuff simply for existing in the video game industry. But on the For Honor team, when they found out that I was the writer, I used to get these very sweet messages of like, hey, sorry, I know that you probably get asked stuff a lot, but I had a question about the warden's backstory and I was just wondering, and I'm like, if you politely ask me, I will answer any question you send my way. (laughs) And I did. Like anyone who actually reached out to me and I didn't get a single negative interaction from the community on For Honor. They are sweet babies and I will shout them out forever. (laughs) Um... And there are times where if they, if I saw that they liked something, I went for it. And one of my favorite things was they really started to like my, my memes because I was putting a lot of pop culture into the, so there's a, a distinction in front, or at least one that I made is if the item appears in universe, 
it is lore oriented and universe oriented. If it's something that is superfluous simply for the player, like an emote or a finisher, then I would make it as silly as possible. <laughs> right? And one of the emotes was a rainbow just appears over the head. And I have to name all these things, right? Like every single thing I had to name. And I could have just called it rainbow. And I decided that that was too easy. So I called it multicolored circular arc. And that went into the game. Like, again, no one checks me. (laughs) (laughs) So the fans get the new emote of multicolored circular arc. And it became a meme because... Of course it should have been called Rainbow. What idiot wouldn't call it Rainbow? Who would take the time to make it the longest description of a rainbow possible? And someone actually tweeted me. Like one of the players tweeted me and they're like, why did you call it that? And I answered, because it made me laugh. (laughs) For the (laughs) They're like, fair enough. And again, the more feedback I got from the community, the more stuff that I saw they liked, I'm like, oh, heck yeah, I'm going in. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm just curious. You know, I, I think the internet has made a lot of this stuff, you know, has made people more accessible, has made information more accessible. And I think that that might be a big reason why we've seen, you know, more and more lore in video games. Well, let's, I guess, try to wrap this conversation up. Ari, how how do you think, how do you think the industry can improve on the way that it implements lore or communicates lore to the player? Like what, what can they do better when it relates to, to how that contextual information reaches the player. I think that there needs to be more of an emphasis on environmental storytelling. And I know that all these letters and all these audio recordings are simply for the collectionists, right? Mm -hmm. It's an excuse to draw gameplay time and give something like someone something to do, but we need to stop. It's not great. And thank you for saying that. I'm just getting real with you guys. No, I'm on, I'm, on, I'm 100% on board with what you're saying. So I think that we need to do a better job of letting the game tell the story of the world and letting the player actions, because we are going to a place where I think games are going to be one of three categories, right? Open world, like massive open world, uh, online shooter or whatever, and then indie games just holding up their end of what they're doing. Like the, the days of the linear game are going to be numbered. And hmm. if we have these big open worlds, don't, don't make me collect anything. Let the world tell me what's <laughs> happening, right? Mm-hmm. Let there be, put your effort and your time into NPC barks. You guys know if I use the term bark, you get that, right? Just people. I, I assume that's just like a call out from yeah. unsolicited yeah. from the NPC. It's a term that we use that's just literally lines that are written and hit randomly. I used to be an adventurer like you. Exactly. That's a bark. (laughs) Oh, I did put one of those jokes. I put a shot in the knee joke in For Honor, and it really divided the community. (laughs) (laughs) It's your biggest career regret. I think you're legally obligated to put a arrow to the knee (laughs) reference in every video game now, right? That's that's the law in Canada? Yeah, (laughs) that's it. (laughs) But yeah, like just just do a better job of let letting the player figure it out as they go. And if you have a game like Overwatch or a game like For Honor or a game like Rainbow Six, just know that it doesn't matter. Those are gameplay first games 
And mm-hmm. as long as the world is believable and fun, that's all you need. Indie games can do whatever the hell they want, right? <laughs> They're just going to make beautiful masterpieces, and that's where video games become art. Ari, I have to say I agree with everything you just said. I don't know that I could really put it any better myself. I think, and I've said this a million times before, I think video games are so closely tied to the way that movies and and books have told stories. And video games offer something unique in that the player can explore and discover things on their own. And I think that the, the more that we can move away from the, I don't know what to call it, like the scripted narrative. Not that a game can't have a story, but the the more that we can move away from the exposition that's necessary in those other mediums and put more of that into like contextual storytelling, things like discovering world elements or organic conversations or, you know, or barks or the, the things that you're talking about. I think the better gaming will be. So that's, yeah, I, I, I'm just going to piggyback off of uh, what you what you said there. Jared, how can uh, the, the games industry improve on the way that they deliver lore in your eyes? Uh, you guys said it really well. Um, I, I just wanted to bring up Horizon Zero Dawn because I it, it's one of the games in recent memory that I played through that I completely fell in love with the world and the backstory of that game. But at the same time, uh, to get the backstory of kind of what happened and how the world ended, uh, there was a lot of reading involved and and audio logs unlike fallout which is also another post-apocalyptic game sent sent years after the the actual thing that caused the the apocalypse there's not a whole lot of environmental storytelling it's like well let's pick up this audio log and listen to what happened and i still really enjoyed that but they could have done a better job i think just kind of organically revealing that stuff to you uh, which they kind of did in that game when you would go into like the underground bunkers where like clearly um, you know the things that uh, society had done towards the end of of their of their reign of that time. Um, you know, left them. So I, I, I like that. I like the the juxtaposition between the, the two um, main themes of that game. But yeah, like you guys said, it, it was it was stuff that had to be explicitly told to me because they just didn't. It wasn't revealed naturally, and that's hard to do. I, I can imagine it's it's kind of like it's reimagining the way that we tell stories as people start to appreciate stories in video games more. Uh, I think there'll be more of a demand for that, but you know, people took novels and made them into films two hour, hour and a half long films. And that, that was hard to do. And now we're kind of doing that again by trying to change the way that we tell stories in video games. So I don't think that there's a right way to do it yet, but uh, experimentation is always welcome. I, I, I appreciate that people are exploring different avenues of it. I say it all the time on this show. I've probably already said it multiple times this episode. I'm, you know, I, I play games for the gameplay experience first and the story second. But in my in the ideal sort of future of video games, those things will be indistinguishable, right? Like right now, I'm the kind of person who doesn't really care for cutscenes in games. I find them, I, I find that removing player agency is distracting for me when I'm when I'm playing a game, but. You know, if we can sort of re-figure out the way that video games tell stories, at a certain point, I will no longer have to sort of make that distinction between being a gameplay first or a story first. It will just be sort of one. I fully agree. And there's another, I mean, some cutscenes are literally used to load the next area. And I think that as 
our technology and games become smoother and we no longer need those load times, I think you'll find that cutscenes will be a thing of the past. I hope so. <laughs> did we uh, did we cover everything in lore that we wanted to get to? No, but we never do. We it's... never do. We, we could spend five hours talking about we it. We tried. But... We, we did our best. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you, the listener, have any questions or comments for us about lore or any of our previous topics, you can send us an email at podcast at gbfeature.com or connect with us at gbfeature on Twitter. Also, if you have ideas for future topics, send those along as well. I'm I'm always, I, I, I have this master list. I've mentioned it before. I've got, oh, I don't know, 60 ideas for episodes on there. And every once in a while, I'll have a guest like Ari who will uh, suggest a topic for what she wants to talk about. And I'll go, how did I not think of that and already have it on my list? So if, if, you, have, if you have ideas for what you want, to talk, want us to talk about in the future, send that along and then we will try to find the perfect guest to go along with it. But Jared, let's jump into our emails. What do we got? Yes. Uh, who is this for? Who is this one from? This Twitter, this uh, Mr. Mischievous. Mr. Mischievous on Twitter, our our number one super fan, Mr. Mischievous on Twitter. He reached out to us and he says that I think one of the most jarring things is realizing that mid saving the world that I have to stop by a shop and empty my inventory. He's referring to the shops and video games episode that we did recently. Uh, he goes on, he says, I have an odd compulsion to pick up everything, and most RPGs play more like Harvest Sales Simulator 2000. He says, I'd like to see the development. I'd like to see this development in games. As you're progressing and using the same shop time after time, you go from a nobody to friendly with a shopkeeper to customer of the month to being used in adverts as you become famous to an endorsement deal. Always bothered me that the shopkeeper treated the Dragonborn the same way that they did the Bumbled Wit. Mick lame ass very color like, very colorful mr mischievous <laughs> uh, I, I mean if you're bringing this person tons of cool loot from tombs that haven't been opened in centuries you'd think they'd be a little more grateful before this episode i didn't think i had such strong opinions about shopkeepers and games thanks dudes no um, thank you that's mr. a good point i like that a lot and they kind of did that in mass effect right mass effect you start out as kind of a, a low rank soldier and eventually you are running commercials for their favorite shops on the Citadel. And that, I think that was that was pretty funny. A, little, a good little world-building thing in there where the guy just got famous and more famous, became a public figure over time. I do agree with that. It really bugged me in Skyrim because Oblivion did a better job of it. Like, at the end of Oblivion, you would go into town and people would be like, oh my god, like, you're the one, right? And you're like, yeah, I am. And at the end of Skyrim, people were just like, I've got my eye on you. Yeah. Don't touch my chicken. Like, how fucking dare you? I went into the afterworld and killed a dragon that was eating souls? Show me a modicum of respect. There's so much in, in video games, right? That sort of goes un... I don't know, unchallenged or unconsidered. And shop shops are one of those things that, I mean since their very inception in video games have not changed much over time. You know, we've seen little changes here and there and some, you know, occasionally a game will come out and have a really creative use for a shop or a, you know, a memorable shopkeeper. But for the most part, shops are just shops in games. And it won't be until, you know, we see something that really sort of shakes up that equation for what a shop is that, that shops will permanently be changed for the better. But I like, I like this uh, suggestion. So thank you for the feedback, Mr. Mischievous. I'd like to go into a shop that I've stolen from before, and then one day my picture is up behind the counter. Like, don't, <laughs> do don't not, sell to this guy. Do not sell to this man. 
<laughs> have you guys actually played the new God of War? I am. I'm probably like three quarters of the way through it. I find that their shop system is very fun. Yes, the, there's two characters that run the shops in that game, and they are very good. I still have. I'll just bought. leave it at that. I'm embarrassed. I still haven't. <laughs> it's hard to talk about anything in that game without having a spoiler, so it's just like just play. Yeah, that's why play. I really didn't talk about it this episode. I know because I've got some thoughts, but I will not discuss them. We'll save that for a couple months down the road. Instead, of, instead of playing God of War, I'm I'm instead playing the remastered version of a game that came out ten years ago. Boo! <laughs> oh no, don't! I I'm ashamed. I'm just I I am as ashamed as I probably should be. <laughs> well, thank you again, Mr. Mischievous. Uh, I, I guess that's going to do it for our listener emails this week. Um, we're light on on listener feedback. Please, if you if you have thoughts about any of the things that we've talked about, please send it to us. We like hearing it all. Or if you just want to make fun of me and my bald head, you can do that as well. Send us oh, your for honor slash fiction and we'll forward it along. I, I, oh, there's some good ones. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, and feedback can always be sent to us at podcast at gbfeature.com. That's going to do it for the episode. But before we get out of here, I have to thank our guest, Ari McGillivray. Ari, thank you so much for being here. This, is, this has been a treat. I had a blast. Thank you so much for inviting me on your show. Of course. It was our pleasure. Where can our listeners keep up with your work? Where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at McGillivray514. So that's my last name and the area code of Montreal. Um, And keep an eye out on Reflector Entertainment. We might be announcing some neat things this year. That's all I'm going to say. Cool. And whenever whenever you're ready to announce something, please let us know. We'd be happy to shout it out on our Twitter and announce it on on here. Will you guys be at E3? Can you say um, okay. Bye. <laughs> As a reminder, we release new episodes every two weeks. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast so you don't miss anything. If you like what we do and want to help us out, head over to iTunes and give us a review. I want to thank Kyle Clark for making our theme song. You can check out his podcast. This is Rad on iTunes. I'm Stephen Bennett. That's at Stephen underscore the gamer on Twitter. You can find me at Jared Brun. We want to thank you, the listener, for taking the time to listen to us chat about video games. This has been Game Breaking Feature. Remember, it's okay to disagree. Just don't be a dick about it. All right, thank you. Thanks. I want to see some of that game-breaking feature fanfic. When's that coming? Oh, no.